Oh, suggested topic this week is practical ways to be active in worship. So that's an interesting topic, isn't it? He's, all, all these are so good. I, I really appreciate the topics that people have, have given to us. This is the 25th of those topics today. And uh, the 5th of 13 under the category of Christian living. So again, how to be active in worship. Important consideration. Is it not true that it's very, very common for Christian worshipers, for us as Christian worshipers, to be going through the motions of worship and be far away, really detached, not really engaged in what we're doing. In our reading from Mark 7, we saw how Jesus addressed this problem. I'll draw attention in particular to Mark 7, verse 6, where we're told, He answered and said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. What do the lips refer to there? They refer to the external forms of worship, not just limited to the lips, but that represents the whole what we do with our, our bodies, and a lot of it's what we do with our lips, isn't it? These worshipers were then, as it were, performing acts of worship to God, but they weren't having real communion with God. Jesus says that their hearts were far away. In the Bible, the heart refers to the inner person. It's, the way we use heart a lot of times today is some, sort of limited to the affections, And it certainly includes that, but it includes the whole inner person, the mind, the emotions or affections, and the will. On the outside, these people look just the same as the person beside them who is actually worshiping God from a loving heart. But these whose hearts are far away might as well be robots. You know, you can plug a robot set it up in there and it could do all the singing and all the stuff it's supposed to do at the right time and then it's done. You know the people that made uh, prayer wheels where they tape a prayer onto a water wheel and put it in the water and the wheel would spin around and every time it went around they, pray, they said the prayer was being offered up to God. Well yeah you can just do that you know and then you, you, uh, that might as well be doing that when we're detached. Kings of the earth might be happy enough to have external honors. They might have people as long as they do the outside Good good to the king. But the king of heaven sees our hearts. And he knows what's going on within. So Jesus calls them hypocrites, play actors. Putting on a show of love, of worship, when there is no love. So as you can see, I'm talking about being active in worship to mean really being active in the soul. Uh, I, I assume that that's what the one who submitted this topic meant. Because it's quite easy to be active in worship as far as the things that we're called to do with our bodies outwardly. I mean, you can sit before the word being read and preached as one who is listening. You can stand and sing songs of praise. You can bow your head before God in, in prayer and worship and lift up your eyes to him. And you can eat and drink at the Lord's Supper. You can, you can do all those the external things. All that's easy enough. But the challenge is to be active in your spirit, isn't it? Your, your whole soul. We need to be active in the sense of being responsive to God himself in our worship, engaged with him rather than detached. 
So for our Old Testament scripture reading, I've chosen Song of Solomon chapter 1. And I'm not going to focus just on this passage. This is just one to kind of get us going here. But uh, before I read it, I want to make sure that you know that, uh, that this is called, many of you know that because you were in the series that we did on this, but it's called the Song of Songs because it's about the most important relationship of all. It's a song about the most important relationship of all, and that is our relationship with God, the relationship between Christ and His bride. After this song was written, the Bible has multiple references to us being the bride of Christ. And uh, it begins after the Song of Solomon. In that time in history, you have it all through the prophets. And in the New Testament, Jesus says he's the bridegroom. You know, you, you get the, these things. Jesus has betrothed us to himself in order that he might bring us into his father's house to share his inheritance. He had to pay our sin debt in order to bring us into his father's house. And he did that on the cross. And now by his spirit, he is working in us to prepare us to live in his house. He delights in our progress as we grow in our love to, for him and in our conformity within his house to his beautiful ways. The Song of Solomon opens then with the bride Shulamith or the Shulamite, which means, you remember what it means? Princess of peace. And then yearning for her husband, Shilomo, which is Solomon, and that means prince of peace. So these are figurative names, aren't they? You have the princess of peace and the prince of peace. Now listen now as I read to you then from the first chapter in the Song of Solomon. Read the first uh, chapter. It's 17 verses long. Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 1. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon. The Shulamite, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine, because of the fragrance of your good ointments. Your name is ointment poured forth, therefore the virgins love you. Draw me away. Daughters of Jerusalem, we will run after you. And just point out here that you is masculine, so it refers to him. Um, the Shulamite, the king has brought me into his chambers. Daughters of Jerusalem, we will be glad and rejoice in you. We will remember your love more than wine. The Shulamite, rightly do they love you. I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. Let the tent, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon, do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. And to her beloved, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? The beloved, if you do not know, O fairest among women, follow in the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. I have compared you, my love, to my filly among the Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with chains of gold. We will make you ornaments of gold with studs of silver. The Shulamite. While the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. A bundle of myrrh is my beloved to me that lies all night between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blooms in the vineyards of Injedi. The beloved. 
Behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. The Shulamite. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved. Yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green. The beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters of fir. We thanks be to God for his, his precious word. And looking at this subject, practical ways to be active in worship, I want be, to begin by asking what ought to be our aim in worship. What are we trying to do? And then we'll look at how we ought to prepare for worship after that, and then at how we ought to conduct ourselves in worship. So first of all, what are the goals in worship? And then uh, how we ought to prepare for worship. And then how we ought to conduct ourselves in worship. So the first thing, the Song of Solomon sets forth in, a, in its beautiful allegorical way that it does things. Three great aims that we ought to have when we worship God. The first great aim we ought to have in worship is to behold our glorious God. That's what you want to do when you worship, isn't it? The song shows we love him. His name is like an ointment poured forth. Your name, it says in verse 3, is like an ointment poured forth. It's like a pleasing fragrance that fills the air. It fills the atmosphere. His name is whatever he reveals to us about himself. That's what God's name means. This causes the virgins... Those, they're called virgins because they're not clinging to idols, right? Perversions of God or false gods or things like that. Other gods, they have only one husband. And uh, it, it, so it's about those virgins who love him. It's, uh, he, it makes them run after him, as it says, when he, when he reveals himself. To yearn to enter into his chambers, that they might behold his excellence in his glory. That's what we want to do when we come before God. When we worship, he reveals himself to us. How? Especially through his word. And what has he revealed? Well, we see that he is glorious in majesty. That he is full of sovereign authority. The ruler and the ultimate judge of all. He is the one who speaks and it is done. He says, let there be light, and there is light. He spoke, and the world was created. Whatever he pleases, he does in heaven and on earth. We see his wisdom and power in his word, and we marvel at who he is. We see that there is such beauty and perfection in him. He is without spot or stain. He is holy and pure, constant in faithfulness and truth. He does not deviate from truth. He is a consuming fire to all that is perverted. We see his judgments against sin revealed. Expulsion from the garden with the sentence of death when our first father sinned. We see it at the great flood of Noah. We see it at the crucifixion of Jesus when his wrath fell upon his son because of our sins. We see also that his mercies are over all of his works. These are things revealed to us in the word. He filled the world with good things and he walked with us in the garden of paradise. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Between them there is pure love. After we fell, he brought forth redemption 
And he calls graciously all men everywhere to repent. Nowhere is God's grace seen so well as in his saving work. Those who know him best are like Moses was. The more they see of his glory, the more they want to see. If you haven't seen much of his glory, you don't have as much of an appetite for it as someone who has seen much of his glory. You remember Moses? He saw God face to face in various ways, as it says. Not, not literally, of course, but it expresses it that way. And Moses, what did he say? Show me your glory. He yearned. As soon as he saw glory, he wanted to see still more. That should be our yearning cry in our worship. Jesus even taught us to, to ask for those things, like to say, hallowed be your name. That means let your name be glorified. Show your glory to us, Lord. And we sang it, or make your face shine. You know, show us who you are. Show us the, the beauty of your, your person. So that's the first great aim to, in worship. We want to see God. We want to behold God. The second great aim we ought to have in worship is to behold his love toward us. In verse 2, you can see how the bride of Christ expresses the, this wish. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. So now we're not just seeing that God is love, but we're seeing his love toward us. It says, for your love is better than wine. We want him to make his love known to us personally. Notice that we begin here uh, talking about him, and then we shift to talking to him. See it right in the same verse. Let, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth about him, and then shift, for your love is better than wine. What is sweeter? What is more excellent than to know of the, to be loved by God, than to be loved by God and to know that? This is a desire for him to show us that love. That's what a kiss is, isn't it? It's an expression of someone's love for us. We want God to express his love to us, make it known. In worship, he declares it. He tells us what he has done. He tells us what he has done to save us, how he redeemed us by his blood, how that even while we were yet sinners, Christ saved us, how he came here in flesh and died for us. How he loved us with an everlasting love and therefore has drawn us to himself. He tells us of his plans for us, that we would live with him in his father's house and share in his glorious inheritance. He tells us how he conquered death and sin so that we might be with him forever, that he wants us with him. The father tells how he sent his son and how he planned it all. In worship, we behold his excellent love in the songs that he has given us in the word that he has given us, in the sacrament that he has given us, and most of all, in the preaching of the word of God. We yearn for him to show us more and more the depths of his love. The third great aim that you ought to have in worship is for love to flow out from you to him. To express your love in response to him. In verse 12, we, the bride, say, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth its fragrance. So here he is at his table with his guests around him, his, his family around him, as it were, ministering to them, revealing himself ministering to his people the things that they need, blessings of all kind, of eternal life and holiness and growth. And as we see him, what do we want? 
Let my love go out to you. Let my spikenard send forth its fragrance. We want the room to be filled with our love for God. Isn't it a beautiful picture of what we desire in worship? Holy love to well up from within us in response to him. Now, I know that this doesn't happen near as much as it should from us. But this is what we want in response to his glory and grace. We want the expression of that love from us to go toward him as a sweet perfume. We are told that the father seeks those to worship him who worship not with external form only, but who worship in spirit and in truth. See, the, uh, we're, we're told that his greatest commandment is that we love him with all the heart, soul, mind, and strength. If that's his greatest commandment, surely he desires for that to be the expression of the soul as we come before him and learn of him in worship and see things about him and commit our way to him. So when you put it all together, our aim or our goal in worship is to behold the glory of our God and his gracious love for us and then to respond to him with genuine love, love responding to that love. Certainly we come short of that as long as we're in this world. But when we're reconciled to God through Christ, it is our desire and we have forgiveness in as much as we come short. But the last thing that we want is to come before our Lord and for him to say, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people draws near to me with their lips, but their heart is far away. Worship is important, and we do not want that, as what he, how he evaluates our time before him. Now let's consider then how we ought to prepare for worship. If it's so important, how should we, we need to prepare for those things that are worship? are important so to start with you cannot worship god unless you are reconciled to god we live in a world that is that fell into rebellion against god this rebellion is our common heritage as human beings we all share in that rebellion we cannot love the true god or worship him until we acknowledge this problem our sin and receive forgiveness of our sin through faith in jesus christ so if you're not Trusting in Jesus Christ, you can't worship God. What is even worse, uh, God cannot receive our worship or us as long as our sin remains on record. So it's not only that we have no interest in worshiping him, but also our, us coming before him is obnoxious to him. It's not something that we can even do. Jesus, God's son, died on the cross to make atonement for our sins so that we can be forgiven and restored. So we need to turn from our sin to Christ for forgiveness and new life as a worshiper of God. Once we humble ourselves and come to God, we will be able to love God and he will be able to receive our worship. So we'll have uh, uh, more reason than ever then to love him <laughs> because when we have come to him in salvation, then that's one of the primary things that we praise him for and that we see his love in and we see his character and that our love flows out to him on account of. So this is essential. For, to be active in worship, you need to be a, a, a Christian. You need to be a believer. Second, it is important for us to maintain our daily walk with God if we expect to be prepared for worship. It's a great delusion for, to many to think that they can live out of accord with God 
and then show up on Sunday and, and bring acceptable worship to him. You know, you, you can't do that. The scriptures tell us quite otherwise to those who think that. I think, always think about the illustration of Al Capone. He would, he would go to mass every week. You know, he'd be planning about murders and different intrigues and robberies and things that he was going to do, and, and then he would go to mass. <laughs> you know, what's going on with that? Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Peter warns husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7, that their prayers will be hindered if they do not treat their wives with understanding as a weaker vessel. Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 15, that if we will not forgive our brother, then our Father in heaven will not forgive us. So you come with harboring bitterness and resentment toward other people. Don't expect that you're going to be able to worship God. The Lord told his people through Isaiah the prophet, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Those things don't go together. Iniquity. Okay, so I'm in rebellion and defiance of God, and then I come to the sacred meeting. It doesn't work. Isaiah 1.13 says that. In other words, if you're living in rebellion against him all week, don't think you just barge into worship and all of a sudden you're acceptable in his sight. It's not so. Now, how does this work out practically? Well, it means that you deal with sin and you walk with God. So when sin comes up, you deal with it. He's given us a way to deal with it. It means that you do not willfully sin and then refuse to repent, refuse to ask forgiveness, both of God and those that you have wronged. It also means that you maintain communion with God. You know, you're spending time with him in prayer. You're walking with him. You're meditating on his word, as we sang in Psalm, Psalm 1 earlier. It means basically living for him in whatever you do. It includes putting in an honest day's work. It includes things like loving your neighbor and showing kindness to your neighbor, caring for your family, seeking to honor the Lord in all that you do. It means bearing patiently with wrongs, loving your enemies, helping others to come to know the Lord or to walk with him, those who do know him, putting to death your sinful desires, your uh, sinful passions and, and lusts. And it means that you replace your complaining with thanksgiving. Do that all through the week. And then you'll be ready to worship God. You also do need to do things that are specifically aimed at preparing for worship. Okay, so what, what am I talking about? One of the most important things you can do is to stir up your soul to worship God. In the Bible, we have examples of worshipers talking to themselves about this. You ever talk to yourself about your worship? It's a, it's a good thing to do. For example, Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. You're talking to your soul there. Say, bless God, soul. You need to get at it. You know? and, and Psalm 57, 7 through 10 is another where we say, My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. And then we talk to ourselves. Awake my glory. That's a reference to your soul. Saying, wake up, stupid, sleepy soul, drowsy, sleepy soul, get going. Like, we're here to, uh, here to worship God. And uh, awake, lute and harp. Instruments are often used in reference to a stirring up of our, our souls like that. I'll awaken the dawn. Like, I'm, I'm going to be so big with my worship of God, I'm going to wake the sun up. You know, it's going to, I'm going to arouse things. 
I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches into the heavens and your truth into the clouds. You should also pray specifically for your worship and for worship. Pray for those things I mentioned before that are aims in worship. To see his glory. To see his goodness. And to praise him for it. Like Moses' uh, prayer. That's a great prayer. Come into worship. Lord, show me your glory. If that's the aim, ask him. That's how you prepare. Uh, or as Paul did, Ephesians 3, 16 to 18, that he would grant you, Paul says, I pray this for you, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Pray for the preacher and the preaching and that you and the rest of the congregation will receive the word with faith and love, that you will lay it up in your heart, that you'll practice it in your lives. In preparing for worship, consider some of the ways that you need to change. You have areas, no doubt, that God is working in your life that you know about. Maybe there's some that you need to discover that you haven't paid any attention to. Ask him to show you stuff and ask him to help you. Ask him to expose the sin and the areas you need to change. And then say, Lord, I'm coming to worship you. Like, help me with this thing that I'm struggling with. I, I don't love you enough here because I have sinful desires that are stronger than my desire for you sometimes. So strengthen me, and, and it's a practical thing you're, you're calling on him. And in your preparations, take time to consider the things that God has done for you. The big things as well as the little things. That's a great thing to do in preparation for worship. Meditate on his beauty and excellence. And praise him even as you prepare to come to praise him in the assembly. Go ahead and start. Tell him how excellent he is. Some of you have... Uh, drives to, to worship. And during that time, it's a good time to prepare. Thank him for calling you into the, his holy assembly and consider what a privilege it is to be able to come before God and to present yourself before the living God and to before his face and to acknowledge him as your God and have him acknowledge you as his servant. That will help you prepare for meaningful worship. And then do some things that you would do for anything else that was important, any, any important event you have, what are you, what are you going to do if there's something really important that you're going to? If, you have an, if you're a student, you have a really important exam, you take measures to be sure that you're your best for that exam. Whatever you know will help you. You know, maybe you need to get the blood flowing a little bit, go on a walk to get your blood flowing before you do something like that. And you say, well, if I don't do that, I'm just a zombie. Or you, people are different. Maybe you, it, it's best for you to get up early. And then you're, you know, you're, you're still drowsy if you get up too late. Or maybe you're the other way around. You're better if you sleep in. You get up and you're all refreshed and ready to go. You slept long and hard. and You're, you know, you're, you're ready to, to get going. You decide whatever, whichever, whatever works for you. Eat what works best for you. And uh, to make you alert. If you don't know... Then experiment, find out, you know, oh man, every time I eat a, you know, heavy breakfast with a lot of, you know, bacon and stuff like that, then I, 
Oh, I'm like this. Or maybe that gives you protein and strength to carry through the day. It doesn't, we're all different. I'm not going to tell you some specific thing, legalistic rules. You have to do this and this and this. Just talking about having a heart for worship. And you're going to find out what works. Is meat better? Is fruit better? Maybe nothing at all is best for you. We're, we're, all, we're all different. I ordinarily um, drink a whole lot of water uh, during, the, during the week, but when I come to worship, I don't drink as much because it would be kind of distracting if I had to go out and all, <laughs> all the time. And many of you have come over to my house, you know if I'm meeting with someone you know, in, in a normal time in the week, I, I'm, excuse me, i gotta, I got to go for a minute, you know, and I, off I go. But uh, So, you know, you regulate things like that. Think about it. This is an important thing. If you're going to some important interview, you think about what you're doing. You make, make preparations for it. If you're planning a holiday, you'll try to get things done beforehand as much as possible so that they won't interfere with your holiday. That's an uh, important thing, preparation on the Lord's Day. You want as few distractions as possible. You know, get her done. Get her out of the way. If you can lay things out, maybe, maybe you have a hard time getting things together in the morning. Do that the day before, and then just just stuff that helps, whatever it is. You might, if worship is important to you, you'll figure it out. You know, you'll you'll do these things automatically. If it doesn't matter to you, then you you, you won't do anything. I'm I'm sad to see what a low priority worship is for many Christians today. It's not the highlight of 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 our week. We need to stir ourselves up, stir my soul. You know. Uh, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. <laughs> yes, preparation is important if you're going to be active and engaged in worship. Okay, but now we're going to get to what do you do when you're in worship? Okay, so you're actually before God. Practical things you can do to ensure that you are active and engaged while you are actually worshiping. Well, during worship, seek to keep your heart and soul engaged. Okay, that's Mark 7, 6 again, right? The Lord complained. So we saw how those who engage in worship with their lips when their heart is far away, you don't want to be like that. Just as you stir up your soul in preparation, you need to continue stirring it up while you're there. Uh, Sadly, we are naturally earthbound, aren't we? We're different than the animals you see in our creation because we have the capacity to engage with the creator, to know him who is unseen. Animals don't know him who is unseen. We know him and we were created to have communion with him. So we're unique in that way. But that uniqueness goes away because of sin. And we become like the beasts that perish, as the Bible would say. Too often we're like the beasts that perish. We only see what is visible on the earth. That's why we need to stir up our soul while we worship. Endeavor to keep your whole heart and soul engaged. The mind, the emotions, and the will. Some of us are stronger in one area and some in another. We need to be strong in all. So we need to change. We need, don't just say, oh, I'm like this, or oh, I'm like that. I said before, we're all different. I don't care about your eating or sleeping or stuff like that. You figure that out. But when we talk about mind, will, and emotion, don't say, well, oh, I'm just a mind guy. Or, oh, I'm just an emotional person. You've you got to have your whole soul coming before God. That's what we are endeavoring to do when we worship. So maybe you're lazy in your mind. You know, when there's something that's hard to understand, you're like, I don't know, 
I'm out of here. I'm not, I'm going to mess with that. Or maybe you're intrigued by that. Like, oh, wow. Let me see if I can figure this out. I want to understand this. You know, you're just naturally that way. But uh, you, you know, too often, maybe you're one that doesn't want to exert yourself in the area of thinking. Things that are too hard, you know, they're, they're hard to understand. But it's your duty. He's talking about God. It's your duty to strive to know and understand the things of the Lord. We learned about this, didn't we, recently in Hebrews 5? Remember in Hebrews 5, 11, the writer expressed his concern that he was getting ready to talk about Melchizedek. And he said, I'm concerned because you guys aren't going to get anything out of this the way you are right now. Like you become lazy in your ears, he said. You need to wake up. As I've told you, uh, as I told you at that time, I'm not talking about a matter of intelligence here. A person with limited mathematical ability and limited ability, uh, literary ability, can gain a sense of the transcendent majesty of God, and they don't even know what that is. They can gain a sense of that, even sometimes better than someone who is a, a professor that knows all of those terms and can parse everything and lay it all out and make all kinds of outlines and things. They can see that God is far greater and more important than we are, which is what transcendent majesty is. And you can have a really smart guy that thinks he's almost as important as God. And he can tell you all about the characteristics of God and lay out all these things. So it's not a matter of intelligence. Now, at the same time, the intelligent guy can have all of his intelligence and also have a sense of the transcendent majesty of God. Like the Apostle Paul. He was like that. He was a very smart man. But he also grasped that. So it's, it's not a matter of that you have to be a certain amount of intelligence. It's a matter of we're coming before God and we want to know him as God. It, great error is to come to church thinking that you don't need to exercise your mind, that it's just supposed to kind of flow in. You know, you know, you, you've got there's got to be we need to exercise our minds. The Bible teaches us that we saw that in Hebrews. Spiritual knowledge is not supposed to be effortless. You say, well, but spiritual is supposed to be effortless. No, it's not. No, we, we are we're to strive to be godly, to exercise ourselves to godliness. You'll not know the Lord as you ought if you refuse to exert your mind. But maybe. Maybe you're, you're good with the mind. You know, that's not the part you struggle with. Maybe you see emotions, the affections. Uh, they're not moved, at least not toward God. You love doctrine, maybe. <laughs> you know, oh, I, I love doctrine. I love figuring it all out, how it all fits together in the theology and how it all works. But you don't love the Lord who's revealed in the doctrine. You could care less about him. <laughs> it's just the, the, the formulas and stuff. Well, you know, you're, you're as dry as old toast. You know, it's not, it's not a good way to be. Unlike Paul, you don't break out in doxology when you start talking about the wonderful things of God. Don't you love that with Paul? You know, he's writing along and he's telling about all these things about God. And then all of a sudden, like Romans eleven thirty three, oh Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? That, that's what, how Paul responds after he's talking about Stuff like, you know, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, things like that. He, he breaks out with, with this. Or who has first given to him and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now, maybe with you, though, there's, none of, there's not much love, not much fear of God. 
not much brokenness over sin, not many tears, not much joy over your salvation. You know the facts, but you say, I'm just, uh, I'm just not a very emotional person. Uh, that, that may be true. <laughs> that's, that's the way that I naturally tend to be and was for a very long time in my life. Quite a few years ago, though, God showed me that that was something that I shouldn't just say, oh, I'm just like this, that I needed to change. Not that I should put on fake emotion, but that I ought to be moved by the true knowledge of God. There is plenty of emotionalism. That's emotion for its own sake, and I am not talking about that. Emotion that is stirred up by music, visual displays, feelings that are not godly, that is not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about being moved to tears because you see the depth of your sin and how wrong it is. I'm talking about being filled with terror because you realize how holy God is and how great his, how severe his judgment is. I am talking about delight that comes when you see his beauty and the love that comes when you see how much he has loved us. That's what I'm talking about. It has taken me years to get even a little bit of that in my life. But that is the beauty of it, you see. God makes works in our areas of weakness. We don't just resign and say, that's impossible for me. But we labor to come before God and to change in all the ways. Whatever your areas are where you struggle. Well, there's a third thing here. The will. The whole inner man is, needs to be involved. That's the part, that's part of the heart as well. Okay, the heart is all of these, these things. It has to do with the resolution to act on what you see and know. Now, some people are great at that. All they want to do is act. I don't care who God is. What, what do we need to do? <laughs> you know, they're, they're ready to go. I'm going to go out and evangelize the world, and I don't even know God. But I'm going to, there's something to do here. I'm going to go and do it. And they're, you know, they're ready to go and, and act. They're, oh, there's service to be done. I'm, I'm over here. But they're, they're not whole and complete. That, that's one thing. But there's others, you see, who's, who's got, they don't have, the will side is not there. They're, they're happy enough to engage their minds and their emotions in worship. But they're weak when it comes to making resolutions of any kind, which is part of being active in worship. There's no fresh commitment to God that arises out of their worship. There's no resolution to change the way that they've been living. They're like the one in James. They hear, they learn what kind of person they are. They understand it. And they go away and forget. There's no, there's no change. We should be transformed in real ways through worship. So that we come away as one who is going to start, say, spending time in prayer when we haven't been doing that. You come and say, oh, oh I should pray more you know, after you hear a sermon or something. And then you don't. But no, make a resolution to go and do, go and make, actually make the change. Or one who's going to go and ask forgiveness the people that you have wronged. And you know you should do it, but you don't go on and do it. Go on and do it. Make a commitment to that when you're before God. If you meet with him and you see who he is and what he's called you to do, there should be stuff that comes out of that. Your will should be ready to go. Put away, maybe you need to put away covetousness. You're just letting it be there. Maybe, maybe sexual immoral desires or, or different things like that and you're just letting them, letting them hang. You don't deal with it. You don't go on and, and, and resolve. 
Zacchaeus is a great example of this kind of worship. When he encountered the Lord, Luke 19.8, remember what he said? It says, he stood and said to the Lord, look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. He met God and he was ready to go and do stuff that he hadn't done in a long, long time. <laughs> and he, he was ready to make things right. If you engage your mind, your emotions, and your will in worship, you will see that you will be quite active. <laughs> There's a whole lot to do in worship. If you do all the stuff that I have just been talking about, you will not be inactive in your worship. You'll have so much to do. You'll be busy exerting your mind to understand. You'll be exerting your emotions to delight in your Lord with fresh love or to fear him or all, all the things involved in that. And you'll be committing yourself to, uh, to his service. It makes all the difference when you know that you're before the face of God. When you know that he is present. When you respond to him as the living God who sees to the very depths of your heart. He knows what's inside. Instead of an academic exercise or emotionalism or cold resolve, you have true engagement between your soul and God. Let me see if I can show you how this engagement with God happens in worship. In worship, and by the way, this could be public or private. I've been talking especially about public worship, but uh, in worship, you will be exposed to many things. When you sing, when you pray, when you hear the word, when you come to the table, and it is your duty to respond to the things that you're exposed to to, to respond to God. For example, okay, here's, here's some stuff, practical stuff. When you come across something excellent about God in worship, praise Him. Adore Him. Love Him. Stir up your soul. Pray that others would know Him. That they would see Him. That He would make Himself known to them. Humble yourself before the majesty that you see. When you encounter something sinful in your life or the life of your nation or the life of the congregation, confess your sin, ask for forgiveness, repent, think of how to replace the wrong that you've done with the right thing and then follow through, resolve to follow through, give thanks for his patience in putting up with you. For something that you find out has been going on for a long time that you didn't really ever deal with. Maybe jot down a note. There's things that you need to deal with later. Because you can't necessarily go through this whole process. Uh, you get distracted even in that from what else is going on. When you come across something that's hard to understand. Talked about that. or Don't, don't zone out. Don't say, oh, oh, this is a hard thing. No, no. Step up. Engage your mind. Ask God to help you focus and understand. Don't make excuses about being tired or about being incapable or whatever excuses you go to. When you encounter some duty to be done or some command to be obeyed, ask God to give you help to do that and make plans to do it. Say, I will do that. I'll, I'll, I'll make plans. To, I'll do that this week. Praise God for his guidance and his holiness and see that you follow through. When you see something that God has done, give thanks to him. Praise him that he's the kind of God that does such kind things. Love him. 
Seek to imitate him in some way. He's shown kindness that you see in worship. Say, Lord, help me to show kindness that, like that. Resolve to tell others about what you have seen. When you come across some promise that God has made, believe the promise. Embrace it. Don't, don't let a wonderful promise go to waste. <laughs> Receive that from God. Give thanks for it. Pray for grace to believe it if you don't believe it well enough. Adore the Lord for his kindness in giving it. Now, I don't mean to say that you could possibly do all of these things all the time when you worship. What I'm saying is, this is the kind of stuff that needs to be going on when your soul is before God. It can be different. You can't, you can't do all these things at the same time. But this is the kind of responses that we're to have to our God. This is the difference is being before his face, knowing that we're before his face. You will be active in worship when you will not be active in worship when you're not conscious that God is there. You'll draw near to him with your lips and your heart will be far away when that's the condition. But when you come to God as one who is uh, who, who sees him and beholds him, bring your soul before him, then you're, you'll worship him with your lips and with your heart. Please stand and let's ask him to help us. Oh Lord, right now we're doing what we were just talking about in our, we always do this in our prayer after we hear the word preached that we, we ask you to help us to implement the things that we have heard, to engage with the things that we have heard, whether it's something that would bring, should bring forth praise and adoration of you, trust in your promises, something that would admonish us to a duty that we need to fulfill, um, all of the different aspects that come out. Father, we pray that this would be our way when we worship you. Father, these things, I, I find these things to be extremely um, convicting. And so we do ask you to forgive us because you know, if we want to be humble, if we need to be humbled, all we need to do is think about our worship. <laughs> and we'll be humbled <laughs> if we think about it very long. And you know, we've done that for for quite a while now today. And so, Lord, here we are. Um, we, we come before you and we say, Lord, please have mercy on us. And please help us, Lord, to, to become more, more engaged in, in the worship of, of your great and holy name, to be able to see your glory. We pray that you would show us who you are, that we would not be dull and distracted before your glory. And we pray, Father, that we would also see what you have done for us, your great love for us. And we pray, Lord, that we would as well respond, respond in the way that, that we should, that we would really learn what it, what it is to be, to be active in our worship. Thank you for speaking to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Receive now the blessing that the Lord has for you, his people. Receive it with gladness and thanksgiving. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you, that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he has commanded your fathers. Amen.